The period of the battle, from October 1st to the 11th, involved the heaviest strain on the Army and on me. General John J. Pershing, Commander, American Expeditionary Force, from his memoir, My Experiences in the World War. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 88, Blackjack, part 2. We're going to start off with some admin, so Patreon shoutouts to Enrique and Alan. Thank you so very much for joining up to support the podcast. As patrons on Patreon, you will be helping to financially support the podcast. As thanks, you will have early access to all new episodes, as well as transcripts and bibliographies for those episodes. Patrons also have other perks, such as extra episodes that have not yet been released. If this sounds interesting to you, check us out on patreon.com backslash battles of the First World War podcast. Patronage of the BFWWP can begin with as little as a dollar per episode, and it is greatly appreciated. Patrons are only charged when a new episode is released. Another shout out to listener Warren, who generously donated to the podcast through PayPal. Thank you so very much, sir. PayPal is another great way to make one-time or recurring donations to the podcast. PayPal is an easy way to donate to the podcast. We have a PayPal button on the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, or you can just type in the contact email, verdunpodcast at gmail.com, into the PayPal website. Next up on Admin Notes is Rob Laplander and the audio version of his book, Finding the Lost Battalion, Beyond the Rumors, Myths, and Legends of America's Famous World War I Epic. What about it? Well, the book is the definitive account of the American World War I Epic of Lieutenant Colonel Charles Whittlesey and the 700 men surrounded with him in the Charlevoix Ravine for those fateful days in October 1918. And I recorded an audiobook version of it that is available for immediate download. Finding the Lost Battalion is broken up by chapters in podcast format, 
and you will have almost 36 hours of listening time ahead of you. The audiobook can be gifted as well, and you can even set the delivery date. So, if a special someone's birthday is coming up, you can have it delivered on their day. Links to where to purchase the audiobook will be in the episode notes. Buy the book, folks. You'll enjoy it. Okay, so this next one, this is a first for the BFWWP, I think. So, the biggest thing is how to treat this delicately. Recently, there was a rather alarming report from Toulon, France, about the rather curious placement of a live World War I-era 75mm shell that led to a hospital being evacuated by bomb disposal personnel. Okay, here's the deal, folks. Leave unexploded ordnance alone. Period. It shouldn't be on you or near you or anywhere else. Just leave it alone. Please. Okay? So if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. Anybody else want to get back to the front? Because I do. Entry into the Great War wasn't the first time the United States had had need of a large army. The Civil War, just 50 years past, had needed hundreds of thousands of men in Union Blue to defeat the Rebel Gray. This time, though, the U.S. Army would need millions of men in uniform, multiple times more than its current size of some 130,000 regulars. It wasn't just men that were needed, it was everything. In his memoirs, Pershing was critical of Congress and felt they had fiddled while Rome burned. Quote, This same Congress also passed an act providing for the reorganization of our military forces, but scarcely a move was made to carry it out prior to our actual entrance into the war. End quote. The AEF would need men by the millions and supplies of all types by the millions of tons. It would need ports in France solely dedicated to AEF supply and deployment operations, and it would need its own section of the Western Front where it could operate independently. The size of the army, its organization, its place on the front, and the selection of lines of communication all had to be determined as far as practicable before our troops in any numbers should arrive, Pershing wrote in his memoir. In connection with our supply system, preliminary consideration had to be given to improvements in facilities at ports, the erection of storehouses and shelter, arrangements for logging and sawing lumber in French forests, the procurement of animals, the purchase of guns and munitions, shipment from home of raw material for their manufacture, agreements for the early supply of airplanes, increases in trackage and rolling stock for French railways, and numerous other matters which came along in the natural course of events. Under the title Line of Communications, the great business organization for receiving, transporting, and supplying our forces was to be built up. Of course, 
Right from the beginning of the American entry into the war, the British and the French began their requests to amalgamate American soldiers into the BEF and French army ranks. And, of course, General Pershing had specific orders from Secretary of War Baker and President Wilson themselves that no such thing was to ever happen. The United States Army was to fight as a national army. Period. While the draft went out and the few readily available troops were organized for deployment to France, Pershing quickly sent word that he'd need a million men as soon as possible. Well-meaning efforts from wealthy and influential men like former President Theodore Roosevelt offered to privately fund and command entire regiments of men, but Pershing politely refused. The new AEF commander later wrote, the regular establishment would have suffered from the loss of an undue proportion of the best officers, who inevitably would have been selected for important positions in these special units at a time when their services were urgently needed in building more largely. Another important reason for disapproving Colonel Roosevelt's application was that in such a war it was necessary that officers, especially those in high command, should be thoroughly trained and disciplined. In Pershing's view, the national draft would resolve these issues. On supplies, the United States was woefully unready to go to war. It immediately had to ramp up its industry to begin the mammoth operation of supplying a multi-million man army. Pershing wrote in his memoir, quote, Our capacity to manufacture small arms ammunition in large quantities was assured through the operations of private factories. As in the case of Enfield rifles, this was due to increased production for sale to the Allies prior to our entry into the war and not to any preparatory action by the War Department. Except for our three-inch artillery ammunition, we did not have enough to provide for more than nine hours' supply, even for the limited number of guns on hand, firing at the rate ordinarily used in laying down a barrage for an infantry attack. End quote. Earlier this year, I was invited on Matt Dixon's Footsteps of the Fallen and Paul Reed's old frontline podcasts. And I believe I was asked on both shows why the U.S. worked more closely with the French than with the British during the Great War. At the time, I was unable to satisfactorily answer the question, but now I've got some clues. In May of 1917, Army Chief of Staff General Tasker Bliss issued Pershing orders on behalf of the Secretary of War. Quote, the Secretary of War further directs that, upon your arrival in France, you establish such relations with the French government and the military representatives of the British government now serving in France, as will enable you effectively to plan and conduct active operations in conjunction and in cooperation with the French armies operating in France against Germany and her allies." End quote. These orders, along with the early decision to adopt French weapons and artillery to fill the AEF's needs, ensured a closer relationship with the French than with the British. 
This was also reinforced by the decision on which ports the U.S. would use and where it would fight on the front. The British initially wanted the Americans to use the channel ports like Calais and Dunkirk as their bases of supply. Pershing and his staff thought that would overtax the already strained ports as they already were handling the BEF's needs. With the channel ports essentially under British control to supply the BEF's portion of the front line from Flanders to Picardy, this was no place in which to insert American forces. Looking further east of the BEF sector, the front line was north of Paris and held by the French. Frenchmen defending the trenches before Paris was a morale issue for the French army, already suffering from the effects of paralyzing mutinies in the spring of 1917. They had to be there, holding the line before their capital city. Having the AEF take over the line here would not do. Furthermore, because, quote, as to the French systems, all lines running from the base at Paris to the front were bearing their maximum burden. If we were to have independent and flexible lines of communication, our army could not be tied down to the railways they were using. Our rail communications must be carefully chosen to avoid any increase in the load that had to be carried by the systems already in use by the two great allied armies. An additional reason for not accepting any of these suggestions was that we could not take the chance of the disastrous effect that German success against the Allies would have upon us if our lines of supply were coextensive with theirs. End quote. An additional reason was that sharing ports and rail lines with the French and British would ensure American dependency on their allies thus making it more difficult to fight as an independent army. Pershing looked at the ports of Saint-Nazaire, Basson, and La Paix, Nantes, Bordeaux, and Poillac. Not only were these beyond German submarine range, but, he wrote, the main railroad routes from these ports toward northeastern France were not included in the service of the rear for either of the Allied armies. And hence, as compared with routes farther north, there were more available for handling material and supplies for our armies. The double-track railways from Saint-Nazaire and Bordeaux united at Bourges, running thence to Nevers, Dijon, and Neufchâteau, with radiating lines extending from the latter point toward the Lorraine sector. It was estimated that these lines, with the collateral routes available, could be improved to meet all our needs, but in case another port, an auxiliary line, should be necessary, we had in reserve the port of Marseille and the railroad leading north. With the port settled, where the Americans would eventually fight on their own had to be determined. General Pershing soon found the sector. Quote, On the battlefront, from the Argonne Forest to the Vosges Mountains, a chance for the decisive use of our army was clearly presented. The enemy's positions covered not only the coal fields of the Saar, but also the important Longuey-Briey-Iron-Ore region. Moreover, behind this front lay the vital portion of his rail communications connecting the garrison at Metz with the armies of the West. 
a deep Allied advance on this front, and the seizure of the Longueuil-Brie section would deprive the enemy of an indispensable supply of ore for the manufacture of munitions. It might also lead to the invasion of enemy territory in the Moselle Valley and endanger the supply of coal in the Saar Basin. Allied success here would also cut his line of communications between the east and west and compel his withdrawal from northern France or force his surrender. Another point was that northeastern France afforded accommodations for billeting and training troops not found elsewhere within striking distance of the front. Few troops had been located in that section, and certain classes of supplies not yet exhausted could be obtained locally. So, there it is, how the Americans came to eventually fight in the Meuse region. At the same time as the questions of where the Americans would disembark their troops and supplies and where they'd fight were being reviewed, the AEF had to look at the additional question of how the Americans would fight. Pershing had ideas. The war could not be ended until the German land forces were beaten, he wrote in his memoir. To do that, Pershing believed the Germans would need to be engaged in open warfare, a war of movement where Allied forces could maneuver to close with and destroy the enemy. He wasn't completely impressed with what he saw from his British and French counterparts. Quote, At the training camp, we witnessed an interesting demonstration of British methods of making an attack including the tactical formations of successive thin lines, the employment of special weapons incident to trench fighting, and defense against gas. With the use of trench mortars and hand grenades, the exercise was more realistic than anything we had so far seen in our own service. Most of the men engaged were unfit for active duty at the front, many of them having been wounded or sent home ill, and only sufficiently convalescent to be useful for home defense or for training new drafts. Many British officers realized that the period of nine weeks' training for recruits was insufficient, but such preparation was for trench warfare only. Much to my surprise, they gave little thought to the possibilities of open warfare in the near future, if at all." End quote. The war would end with the rifle, not with the trench mortar nor hand grenades. It would be infantrymen skilled in marksmanship who would shatter the enemy's formations and lead the way to decisive victory on the battlefield. It is my opinion that the victory could not be won by the costly process of attrition, Pershing wrote but it must be won by driving the enemy out into the open and engaging him in a war of movement. Instruction in this kind of warfare was based upon individual and group initiative, resourcefulness and tactical judgment, which were also of great advantage in trench warfare. Therefore, we decided issues with the Allies and, without neglecting thorough preparation for trench fighting, undertook to train mainly for open combat with the object from the start of vigorously forcing the offensive. To that end, Pershing organized American divisions to reflect this belief. 
American divisions were to have sufficient rifle strength to be able to absorb casualties and continue fighting, unlike European divisions. Thus, these units would be in quote-unquote square formations with four infantry regiments. As we've talked about before, with combined support elements, the AEF divisions would be massive units of about 28,000 men each, twice the size of British, French, and German units. From a U.S. Army Center of Military History essay titled Learning Lessons in the American Expeditionary Forces by Kenneth E. Hamburger, we learn that, quote, Although part of the argument for such a large organization was the shortage of trained American officers required for divisions, the primary rationale was tactical. In keeping with the demands of trench warfare, American military leaders believed that larger divisions would have greater staying power on the battlefield, lessening the need for rotation in battle and simplifying both the training of staffs and division support units and the overall conduct of defensive operations. General Harbert explained that we sought to provide a division with sufficient overhead in the way of staff, communications, and supplies to permit the infantry and artillery to continue fighting for some time. With the deep and very powerful defense developed in the World War, no decisive stroke could be secured in battle without a penetration necessitating several days of steady fighting. It was thus reasoned that the infantry of the division must be of such strength as to permit it to continue in combat for such a number of days that the continuity of battle would not be interrupted before decision was reached. End quote. When Pershing would later acquiesce to the release of the American 2nd and 3rd Divisions at Belleau Wood and Chateau Thierry, it was nearly the equivalent of the beleaguered French receiving two fresh infantry corps. Blackjack Pershing was a tireless and relentless officer, an ever-moving shark in human form. He visited frontline units and units in training. He inspected supply depots. He read reports and seemingly knew just about every detail of everything going on with his ever-growing American expeditionary force. He was physically fit and remained so, incorporating walking and or horseback riding into his daily schedule. He walked kilometers to his office, and once he was even seen running in the snow. He expected the same drive of his officers and men, and during the Meuse-Argonne campaign, he became a ruthless commander who expected results and no excuses. We've seen his orders that there was to be no giving up of ground ever, and that commanders who didn't produce results would be relieved without hesitation. And he followed through with it too, through the actions of his acolyte subordinates like Charles Summerall and Robert Bullard. He is looking for results, Lieutenant General Robert Bullard wrote in his diary. He intends to have them. He will sacrifice any man who does not bring them. Regimental, brigade, division commanders, and lower officer ranks as well were relieved like it was nobody's business. 
As we saw in recent episodes, the new 5th Corps commander, Major General Charles Summerall, relieved several commanders in the 42nd Division when insufficient progress was made before Londres and Londres-Saint-Georges villages. Summerall himself had taken over for the relieved Major General George Cameron. The inevitable stressors of building, training, commanding, and running an overseas expeditionary force and an ongoing military campaign began to pile on Pershing. The AEF hadn't come anywhere near its first day objectives in late September. It wasn't until mid-October that the Kriemhilderstellung was being broken through for the first time. Marshal Foch was generally unimpressed with the AEF and was constantly on Pershing to start showing the results he wanted. Pershing met with Foch around the time he delegated command of 1st Army to Lieutenant General Liggett and created 2nd Army. Foch came into the meeting bitching about the AEF's progress as compared to British and French forces in Flanders, Picardy, and Artois. He also brought up the idea of amalgamating American troops into French and British units. While Pershing agreed to loan the now-blooded 37th and 91st Divisions to the British in Flanders, he categorically rejected the zombie idea of just loaning out doughboys. Regarding the AEF's progress, Foch said, On all other parts of the front, the advances are very marked. The Americans are not progressing as rapidly. Pershing replied that everyone else was advancing because the Germans were shifting all units to deal with the Meuse-Argonne push. No army in our place would have advanced farther than the Americans, he told the French general. Foch was quick to reply, Every general is disposed to say the fighting on his front is the hardest. I myself consider only results. Judging by Pershing's next words, I would guess his blood pressure was steadily climbing to a boil. The Germans could hold up any troops Marshal Foch has at his command. Almost as if to stick it to Pershing even more annoyingly, Foch then said, I judge only by results. Pershing changed the subject to talk about the transfer of command of 1st Army and the creation of 2nd Army under Bullard. This made Pershing a group commander now and put him on the same level of generalship as Pétain and Haig. But Foch and Pershing just didn't like each other. Yes, but reading the dialogue of this conversation, you can't help but think that Foch was just doing his best to needle his American counterpart. Ah, yes, I am inclined to grant your request. However, you are not to construe this as a plan for you to withdraw to Chaumont. Chaumont was the AEF headquarters, well away to the rear of the front line. As usual, Pershing replied, probably doing his best to maintain his own discipline, my headquarters train will remain in the woods at Souilly. I will visit Army, Corps, division, and brigade headquarters as often as possible. That meeting ended 
and Pershing went back to work. He was delegating now, as a good leader does. It was hard for a man with micromanaging tendencies to do so, but he had recognized it was necessary. But, just as good leaders also do, he would follow up and continue to check up on the goings-on of his army. There was plenty to check up on. In the AEF First Army, new commander, Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett, had his work cut out for him. American forces under his command now were exhausted, depleted after weeks of continuous combat, poorly fed, and poorly trained. Liggett had to right this ship before he could launch any new offensives with it. That, and a look at the AEF's general situation in October 1918, will be our next episode. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for photos. Check out the battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.